Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all of the stuff we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. And if you are planning to camp in the Gunnison Valley soon, please make sure you're up to date on the latest camping regulations, which have changed recently. We've included a link in the show notes with everything you need to know. Okay, so I don't think that anybody listening to this would argue that mountain bike brakes aren't important, but how much do you think about the pads and rotors that go into those brakes? There's a whole lot more that goes into stopping a mountain bike than just the brakes themselves, so this week we sat down with Daryl Simmons of Galfer USA to talk about the differences in brake pad materials and why the classic metallic versus organic binary doesn't tell the whole story, the trade-offs that go into designing and choosing brake pad materials, Galfer's extensive brake pad lineup, brake rotors, including their design and how to think about choosing rotor sizes, and a whole lot more. This is a super interesting one and contains a ton of good information that you might not have thought about too much, so let's get right into my conversation with Daryl. Well, Daryl, thanks for coming on. Great to be talking to you. How are you today and where are you today? So I'm out in Carson City, Nevada. I'm doing extremely well. I'm excited to be here and have this conversation with you and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, same. Should be a fun one. So to start things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Golfer and what it is that you do there? So Galfer was originally founded over in Europe, started in Italy, moved to Spain shortly after that. And they you know, started out making brake shoes and then moved over to uh, rotors and pads for, for motorcycles predominantly. And then later down the road, they were there when uh, Formula McGurr, everybody started jumping into the hydraulic disc brake market for mountain bikes there. They did a lot of that OEM production in the brake pad space. Um, they actually still make all their own brake pads and rotors in-house over in Barcelona. We're one of the, the few, if not one of the only manufacturers making our own products in that space. Um, pretty much everyone else exports that over to Asia for production. And actually a few of the major brands export some of their or outsource some of their production to us, so to speak. Um, over here in the USA, this was started by Sonder Molesi and his father, um, son of the founder there over in Spain and started things over here in California in the early 90s, get things going for the US and the North American market. A couple years back, they moved over here to Carson City, Nevada, and that's where I am today. Um, predominantly, my role here is to just grow the bicycle brand, get it caught up to speed, you know, help drive sale, help grow the brand, and you know, any of the, the technical or um, any of the sponsorship side of things, I've got my hand in that as well for the bicycle stuff. Well, I think a lot of people listening to this will probably be used to choosing between centered or metallic and organic slash semi-metallic brake pads when they're shopping. But for people who might not be familiar, what can you tell us about what those terms actually mean and how their performance generally compares or differs? So it's definitely an interesting conversation that more people are starting to have here. And we're having with quite a few people right now, you know, the centered versus the organic or semi-metallic is, it's really not a measure of quality. It's just a name or a process and the material being used for brake pads. So you're centered. That's usually a metallic brake pad. Centering is actually the process in which they make that brake pad there. Um, generally, they're known to be, you know, a longer lasting, more power, you know, less modulation possibly there compared to your organic that are going to generally, or at least that's the, the public perception there is that they're going to be a, a quicker wearing option there. And your organic or semi-metallic are extremely interchangeable terms in that regard, because every organic brake pad has some blend of metallic material in it. Now, the blend of organic material and metallic material changes quite a bit depending on the brake pad. Um, not only the individual components there, but the ratios that you may be using. Right. That makes sense. So yeah, for people who might not have, have caught that the first time around, just to be real clear, organic and semi-metallic kind of mean the same thing. And then a uh, metallic is just higher content of that 
well, metallic part. So exactly, yeah. It's, can you tell us a little bit more about the particulars of those materials that go into them, though? When we're talking about an organic material, what actually is that? And same deal for the metallic parts. So it, it's a it can be a number of different things. Um, you know, more on the metallic side, there's you know ceramic options. There's different ferrous metals, copper, zinc. Um, there used to be asbestos and brake pads, which there's not really anymore. It, it greatly depends upon, you know, the desired performance of the brake pad there. You know, kind of a good way to compare it is it's kind of like a Coke family recipe in a lot of ways is the exact makeup for brake pads. It's, it's known to a few guys over in the factory and that's pretty much it. And they're just changing that up. You know, you say, Hey, I want a brake pad that does this, or I want to do X, Y, and Z. And they're like, okay, so it takes a little bit more of this material, a little bit more of that material. And they're just over there, you know, kind of playing around, so to speak, blending it up. But it's, it's a lot of just knowledge and time in the industry that helps, you know, some of the guys over there to develop the compounds there. Um, but the actual particulars that are in them, that, that changes quite a bit there. It varies quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. I guess I'm not super surprised by that. And we'll get into some of the different options from Golfer more in a little bit here, but to sort of stick to the just sort of more generalizations about brake pad materials. We'll get into how rotors factor in also in a little while here. But on the pad side, I tend to think about sort of the trade-offs that you have in choosing a pad compound as being a handful of variables, primarily power, durability, wet weather performance, and heat management is sort of being the four biggest ones. Is there anything else you would add to that list? And kind of what makes a given pad do well or poorly on those various traits. You know, you pretty well nailed it on the, the different variables you look at there. Another one that I'd probably throw into mix is the, the modulation of your brakes and the feel you get out of it rather than just a, a friction and a power rating out of them. You know, the, the way we went about things a little bit different than some, every brake pad we offer has an intended purpose. So like our, our pro compound pad, kind of jumping into that side of things, it's, it's an extremely aggressive option, but it's one of those, you know, we, we geared it more towards that, you know, peak performance and extremely aggressive bite to it. Your guy's racing down, and that's what a lot of them are using, but your durability is not going to last near as long there. So you have that trade-off in that regard. Same thing with like our e-bike compound. We were going for, you know, heavier bike, a lot of times a bigger person riding them, sometimes riding them extremely aggressively. And those bikes build, build up quite a bit of heat. And, you know, it's, it may be the same brake set from an analog bike, so to speak, to an e-bike. But the braking needs of the system there is entirely different there. So when we look at that, you really want a, a brake pad that's going to, you know, be longer lasting, still have tons of peak power there, but have an extremely high heat resistance. Like, you know, sort of like anything, right? You can't just have any one option that is the best at everything. You're, it's, a, it's a matter of trading off different performance characteristics. And to, well, sort of keep it more general to start with, how would you describe the trade-off between more metallic versus a more organic pad in, in very broad strokes to people who aren't necessarily haven't necessarily spent a whole bunch of time comparing back and forth and they being both. So so in broad strokes really with your your trade-off's gonna be between your organic and your metallic compound there. If you're organic, it's gonna have a more initial bite to it there compared to your metallic pad, which is quite a bit harder generally. You know, it's, it's not going to have the longevity or the durability of a centered pad because it's just simply not that hard. The material is going to wear a bit quicker, whereas you have a, a full metallic, a full centered pad there. That's a, a much harder compound there and a lot more aggressive and abrasive material to it. So that's going to, you know, not have that initial bite, but you're going to have a ton of power there. It's going to have a very high heat tolerance because of what the material is there in itself. 
And it's, you end up with a lot of trade-offs, including as far as, you know, how is that pad going to interact with your rotor? I know we'll talk about rotors more here in a minute, but one of those, that, that harder wearing compound is also going to be harder wearing on your rotor and, and wear some of those components out quicker there. Um, and really depending on the feel and the power you want, you know, sometimes even people are switching up what brake pads they run front and rear just because, you know, sometimes you want a, you know, a, a bitier front and, you know, just more modulation in the rear, depending on how you're riding and your style. So some people are starting to mix and match what they're running front and rear, not just running, oh, I'm going to run this compound on my bike. It's no, I'm going to, I'm going to put this one on the front for reason X, Y, and Z and, you know, something of that nature. Let's get into wet weather performance a little bit. Well, for one thing, when a, a brake is wet and not performing as well, I think something we've all experienced probably, what is it that's actually leading to that reduction in performance? Is it just simply there being water between the pad and rotor and reducing the amount of friction that you've got, or is there more going on there? Yeah, it's in extremely simple terms. Water is a contaminant in that in that sense. You know, it's it's water, but it, it is contamination. It's something that's getting in between your brake pad and your rotor and interfering with that friction surface you have. They're both designed to work together extremely well. When you introduce anything foreign into that mix, whether it's water or sand, dirt, grit, you know, you have a blown fork seal and you're getting oil in there. All of that's contamination. It's going to decrease the desired performance out of them or what you designed and engineered into that product. It's in simple terms, it's contamination. It's just going to be reducing that level of friction that you have there. So one thing I would be curious about then is that I think in, again, very general terms, it tends to be the case that centered metallic pads generally tend to work a little bit better when they're wet than a lot of organic pads do often. Again, broad generalities, but broad strokes, I think that is often the case at least. What would you say it is about the centered pads that is leading to that improvement in performance in the wet? A good part of that is going to be how porous that brake pad material is there. So is it is that brake pad acting like a sponge? Is it absorbing that water? And a lot of times your metallic pads will probably do that quite a bit less, or they'll be porous enough that they'll be able to shed out of there. Another factor that's going to come into, you know, how well your brakes are doing in wet weather is how much heat you have in them. So if you've got a, you know, a brake pad that's going to put a bit more heat in there, it's, it's going to evaporate that water out of your system and, you know, clear that contamination. Whereas, you know, if you've got a, you know, an organic pad that's soaking that water up like a sponge, you're, you're just holding onto that water. In this case, the contamination that's going to be reducing your coefficient of friction, just overall, you know, reducing the performance of your system. It sort of sounded like you were suggesting that in a lot of cases, a metallic brake pad would actually operate a little bit hotter than an organic one might. And so we talked before about how metallic brake pads are in a lot of cases a little bit better at withstanding really high temperature performance. But you are you saying that they also, as part of that, do maybe build up some more heat also? It, it's kind of hard to say in broad stroking terms there, simply because, you know, it's, you know, for example, there was a, an ATV manufacturer we were talking to a while back and they were making ATVs for farm use. So, you know, nothing high speed, nothing high performance there. And we were talking to them about the brake pads that they were going to put in their caliper. They told us that they had these centered pads, which in, in the cycling industry are generally known as your high performance brake pads, a lot of times more expensive. And they told us that they were getting these brake pads from Asia for 25 cents. And we were like, how, how in the world are you getting a brake pad so cheap there? And it was, you know, it, it was a centered, it was a metallic brake pad, but it's, it was designed and engineered to, you know, they're, they went to the manufacturer and said, here's the temperature range. Here's the peak temperature that we'll ever see. And it was made to, to meet that peak temperature. And that was it. 
So anything past that temperature rating, those brakes are going to fail on you. You know, all brakes have that point where you'll, you'll get them too hot. Your coefficient of friction just drops and all your performance just disappears. Um, and you know, even though it was a centered compound, which in the cycling community, I know we generally consider that the, the higher tier, the, the better option. Um, that simply just isn't the case. It's really comes down to, you know, how you're using that material. Um, on that note, you know, some of our over in Spain at Galford, when they are R and Ding a lot of our organic semi-metallic compounds, they realized and did something fairly unique where they were able to get an extremely high friction rating, higher than some of the centered brake pads using different organic compounds and different metallic compounds in that blend there. So they actually got some extremely high friction ratings, some HH friction ratings out of a brake pad that was not centered, which is generally not done by anyone. Um, and I mean, that uh, friction rating is only one part of the conversation. I mean, it, it'd be extremely easy to make a brake pad that's going to have, you know, effectively stupid high friction ratings, but all that's going to do is going to throw you over the bars. So when you're designing that brake pad, it's, you know, how much friction does it have, but also how is it going to feel? How much are you going to be able to modulate? Is it going to be able to shed water or do well in a wet condition? So there's, there's a lot of factors and really makes it a, a more complicated subject than it is at face value there. Totally. And I certainly wasn't trying to suggest that, you know, all metallics are created equal or whatever. And as we'll get into in a minute here, golfers pad line breaks down into a bunch more categories than just that binary. And so it's not like, you know, you have these two monolithic things and that is the extent of the brake pad options that are out there in the world. Absolutely. Even though that's very much seems to be the, the public perception or at least in the mountain biking side of things seems to be a common conversation that way. In terms of sort of how the OE pad companies are like or the OE brake manufacturers are selling pads. That often is sort of how it breaks down, right? You look at a SRAM or a Shimano and they, those are the two options that they have for your codes or your XTs or whatever it might be. So it, it's understandable that that would kind of be the consumer perception, but it is definitely like you're saying a little more complex than that. I do want to talk a little bit more about heat and brakes. We, you touched on this a little bit already, but when a brake is getting, super hot and starting to fade, starting to lose power. I think you kind of alluded to this already, but is it fair to say that at some point the braking material, the pad material is just getting too hot and the coefficient of friction between it and the rotor is dropping off? And so you, that is what is causing the loss in power? Or is there something else going on there that I'm not thinking of? That's exactly what it is. You pretty well hit it spot on. You know, every, absolutely every brake out there has that, that heat threshold, if you will, that if you get them this hot, you are going to lose some, if not all of your braking force and, and, and you're going to be left, you know, just flying down the hill out of control. That being said, you know, most, most brake pads are engineered and designed well past that limit that you'll ever meet. You know, I don't think you're ever going to hit the heat threshold on some of our products or even some SRAM Shimano's, anybody else. I mean, they all make good stuff really. Um, and hitting that point is, is extremely hard to do in a lot of situations. A bigger factor in that that we've kind of looked at and discussed multiple times is, you know, once you start to feel that brake fade and you start to lose power and you let off the brake, what happens next? How, how long does that brake pad take to recover? Does it recover and get back to a point where it is providing the friction and that stopping power that we're all looking for and need? Um, so that's a big part of the conversation we have when we're looking at these is, all right, I've let off the brakes. Does it need to stop for one second? Do I need to not brake for two seconds before I get that power back? Or is that brake pad just glazed over and you've pretty much got a glass surface that when it hits the rotor, nothing's going to happen. When you talk about a pad glazing over, what is actually happening there? 
So that, that's just simply getting the, the brake pad material too hot. And it, you know, pretty much exactly like it sounds like it, it puts a, a glaze on that brake pad surface. You can see it when you pull it out and it's, it's no longer a, a rough or at all ferrous or, you know, th there's nothing there that's wearing and allowing that brake pad to grab your rotor. It's, it's simply making it a slick surface that just slides over everything. Yeah. You can, in a lot of cases, just see it pretty obviously visually, the pad surface will be shinier and yeah, visibly quite different than a new properly functioning pad. Once you've glazed a pad over, is there much you can do about that or are those just done? I mean, I've had sort of mixed results of trying to sand that glazed layer off and stuff, but it's it's dicey. It doesn't tend to really help that much. I've gone that route too in the past where I've taken them out and I've sanded them down a little bit and mixed results, like you said, sometimes it works great, sometimes it doesn't. And really what I look at it is, you know, we're, we're dealing with bicycles. They're not overly expensive for a set of brake pads and I mean, do you really want to put that extra cost on your safety there and your stopping ability? I mean, I, I like going down how fast, like a lot of other mountain bikers and whatnot, or even gravel racing. I like going fast as can be. And, you know, having that stopping power is it's nice when you know how it's going to feel and it's reliable. And, and I'd rather, and I would suggest a lot of people actually just, you know, put a new set of brake pads in rather than trying to revive a product that you've obviously pushed too far. Where do rotors fit in with this? Like if you, how readily can you damage a rotor by getting that too hot? Majority of people are probably going to be harder pressed to, to push a rotor to an extremely high heat point. And it is going to be your brake pads that likely heat up and fail first. More likely what you're going to run into rotors, depending on the, the rotor and the qualities of it and what steel is being used and kind of the whole process around them all the way from what steel you start with, how you cut it, how you finish it, how it's, you know, even shipped and handled is, you know, your rotor, once it heats up, it's going to, possibly start to bend and warp and does the the steel you're using have a good enough memory to it to return to that original straight surface that you want to be using for a brake so that's a, a huge factor in that and kind of like with the like we've alluded to before is you know how much heat is that going to be able to sink and pull out um you know some rotors and again the rotors can be designed for different purposes it's, it's actually it was kind of interesting recently on the downhill world cup circuit there we've got the commensal team uh the commensal ra team running some prototype golf rotors strictly for their use something we designed with them and i've scrolled through a comment section people talking about them is like these look wildly different than the golf rotors that you see for sale right now so obviously if if these are the rotors that that team's using and they look nothing like the design that golfers selling the current golf, current golf rotors have to be garbage effectively and that simply isn't the case it's just that they were designed for a very different purpose um you know how much heat you're going to be able to put into them how they let air flow over the road and how they evacuate that heat out so that's another extremely important big factor in your braking system yeah we'll get into rotors more in a little bit here and i had seen the some photos of those rotors for the Coleman's all team that you're talking about those are the ones that had the little finned kind of relief underneath the underside of the braking track and yeah exactly yeah, we'll throw a photo of those in the uh, show notes to this somewhere so people can see what we're talking about. For, for the record, those, uh, those aren't going to be made publicly available. That was just for them and their very specific needs. But it, it, it is a nice test sled, if you will, or a test setup to kind of see what we might be able to do different. And likely some of those design elements will end up on future rotors. Let's get a little bit more specific about some of the Golfer product. How about you take us through the brake pad compound lineup that you guys have you make i think four different options so why don't you run us through those and how they differ from each other so over here we're offering four options it's 
you know, common question we get asked, are they semi-metallic? Are they organic? Are they centered? And all the brake pads we're offering are a semi-metallic or an organic brake pad. We found that, you know, depending on what performance and what your intention, you know, your writing, your style, everything there, we, we found out that we could, you know, meet pretty much every need there using an organic brake pad just by changing up the, the exact material we're using, the blended material there to, to really accomplish all our goals. So our standard compound, which quite frankly, from a marketing perspective, that's not a great name for a brake pad is, you know, no one's buying a standard car, standard phone. So um, calling it a standard brake pad really isn't the best name, but it's it's the Galfer standard. It's our standard for a brake pad. You know, it's, it's designed to be extremely long lasting, good power, good modulation, good durability out of them there. And that's our, our more budget friendly group or more budget friendly option in the lineup here. You know, if you're just, you know, putting around doing some light trail riding, if you're a smaller guy, these are going to do everything you want kind of thing. Um, really, you know, it's a great option. You know, the, the only downside is that they're called standard. Um, <laughs> that's that. We've got, you know, two other or, or bigger selling options here are Pro Compound or E-Bike Compound. And while one's called Pro and one's called E-Bike, you think the E-Bike one would only be used on E-Bikes, but it, it again comes back to what feel and what you want out of your brakes. There's a lot of Enduro people I know around this area, around Carson City and Reno that they're starting to run a mix of the pro compound with the e-bike compound there. So the pro compound, that's our, our extremely aggressive option. If you want a, a really strong bike, as soon as you grab down a lever, that's going to be what you want to go for. But you get a trade off with that performance. They're not going to last near as long as some of our other options there. They, they do wear quite a bit faster, but for that peak power, that's the way to go. Um, it's the same thing you run into when you're talking about, you know, what tires are you going to run? A lot of people offer that soft compound tire because it gets all the grip and just feels phenomenal, but they don't last near as long as a, a really hard rubber tire that doesn't have that grip and that feel performance that you're looking for. So that's the main thing you'd be getting for there. Um, E-bikes, that's a fun one to talk about. It's actually, the compound we're using there was originally designed for scooters. You know, small scooter, kind of like an e-bike, it's a, it's a big bike. Um, you know, even some of those e-bikes are getting lighter, but they, they are a heavier setup and they really do have some unique braking needs. And there's tons of people that we're talking to every week that, hey, I got this brand new e-bike, but the brakes just aren't holding up. Um, and they're coming with some nice brake sets on them. It's just that the pads and the rotors aren't holding up there. So these were designed to be, you know, extremely long lasting, but tons of modulation, tons of power there. And like we were talking about before, that, that heat threshold is extremely high. You're likely never going to hit that. If, if, if anyone does hit that, please, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, cause I, I really don't believe it's going to happen there. Um, and then finally our road bike compound, that, that's our, our smallest seller just cause the road bike side of things is, you know, it's not the, the biggest part of the industry and it's not our, our key market or, you know, kind of an area that we haven't dug far, far enough into in some regards, but um, one of the local pros that does a lot of gravel racing and cross country mountain bike racing, he's running those on his gravel bike. And, you know, he says they've got, you know, all the power, plenty of bites to them, everything he could want out of a brake pad there. Um, just good all around, all weather, you know, kind of all conditions. For those people you were talking about who are running a mix of the pro and e-bike pads, how are they tending to do that breakdown? Are we talking one in the one kind in the front and one in the rear? Or what's the deal there? That, that's exactly what they're doing. And I've actually heard of it both ways now. Um, you know, one compound on the front. So the more common one that I've heard is, you know, generally people talk about the majority of your braking is done with the front brake. Whether that's 100% true or not really depends on the track you're running and your braking style. And there's a, a lot of professional riders that 
it turns out actually break more with their rear than their front, believe it or not, even though that's where you think most of your braking should be done. But generally, a lot of those guys racing that style, they're putting the pro compound up front and e-bike in the rear. So they've got the, the really hard stopping power as soon as you need it up front, but a little bit more modulation on the rear. So you've got that little bit more control when you're going down the steep stuff and, you know, just want to feather that a little bit more. That makes sense. That's kind of the direction I thought that was probably going to go. And probably a little bit more heat dissipation in the rear doesn't hurt, too, if you got the the e-bikes back there. So to kind of move into a related topic on that front, Golfer's been a bit ahead of the curve in offering larger rotors and the 200 or 203 millimeter options that most of the brake OEMs were topping out at until fairly recently, at least. And especially with the advent of 29 or DH bikes and the like, it definitely makes sense that there'd be a pretty good reason to be aiming for bigger rotors to kind of, well, one, just make up for the power that you lose in going to a bigger wheel. It's sort of a case where the it's not just strictly the rotor size that matters, right? But it's kind of the ratio of rotor size to wheel size to that's dictating the amount of leverage that the brake has over the wheel effectively. And so bigger wheel you need a bigger rotor to compensate to get the same results out of it and well i guess one thing to start is that apart from the obvious added weight that you get by making your rotors bigger are there any significant downsides to going larger that you see or is it kind of just just the weight you know nothing real significant downside wise you know even for me at least the weight isn't even really a big concern because it's not a huge weight difference and generally you're putting that bigger rotor on a downhill bike and there's not a ton of people out there building ultralight downhill bikes there's a few out there and they're super cool don't get me wrong but um, most people aren't looking at that it really the in my mind and this is a, a minor thing is you've got a little bit increased liability of damaging your rotor and, you know, putting a bend in it. So that will prevent you from, you know, having properly operating brakes. But again, I, I haven't dented a rotor all right, riding quite a while. I have done it in the past. I know quite a few people that have done it too, but it's, it's not a common occurrence. And, you know, that's, that's a hazard you have with any rotor size. It just slightly increases the bigger your rotor gets. But then again, that, that doesn't really happen too often. Yeah. And to comment on that weekend, I was just pulling up the, my measured weights here. I've been uh, testing a couple of golfer rotors and uh, a 223 two millimeter thick rotor weighed in at 231 grams and a 203, again, two millimeter thick one weighed 165. So we're talking 65 grams ish to go from a 203 to a 223. So it's not absolutely nothing. We're not talking about a whole lot here. It's a fairly modest gain. The, the bigger thing in my mind that a lot of people need to look at when they're putting a bigger rotor on their bike is, is that really what you need? Do you, do you need that more stopping power? Is there going to be any negative effects to it? Like, you know, it really comes down to how big your person is if they need a bigger rotor and how they're riding. And a lot of it really comes down to how much traction do you have with your front tire? Cause if you're running, you know, a lightweight cross country style tire that doesn't have a ton of grip, you're going to over break it really quick. And, and that can be a big problem in its own right. So maybe, you know, sometimes a smaller rotor is the answer too. Uh, which is contrary to common thinking. One thing that I've been sort of experiencing in the couple of rides I have with that 223 up front on a bike right now is that, I mean, like you said, there is just more power available and probably more ability to overwhelm it at some point. But one thing that I've actually been appreciating about that is just having the amount of power that I want 
available kind of more easily without just having to really haul on the brakes quite as hard. And so even if the absolute peak power is has the potential to lock up the front wheel and skid it, just have, being able to control the brake and get what I want out of it without having to put as much effort in has some benefits too. So that's been interesting. Um, got a bunch more testing that I'll be doing of several different pad compounds and some rudder size stuff. And we'll have an article up on the site in a bit with a whole bunch more on kind of my thoughts on how all that shakes out once I've had more time on it, but uh, it's been interesting so far and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, no, definitely. No, uh, I think another important part of that is it, yeah, you have the appearance of more, more power with a, a bigger rotor, but a lot of it really comes down to the feel and how hard you're braking or how, how you're going into a corner. That's something I kind of figured out as I started playing with bigger, bigger rotors. I mostly ride hardtails on a mountain bike. So I, you know, I don't have a ton of suspension, but I like diving into a corner as fast as I can. And, you know, I, I'm not the biggest guy. I don't need the biggest rotor. I know I could overbrake myself pretty easily, but I noticed as I was putting a bigger rotor on that, it's not that I wasn't braking as hard. It's just, I was braking later and a little bit differently because I, you know, I wasn't getting as much arm pump and I was getting as tired from, you know, pulling on the lever constantly trying to slow down. It, it really just had to change up my riding style a little bit to, to meet that extra braking there. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what I'm getting at with that too. Very similar experience there. So how about rotor thickness uh, in at least some of the sizes you guys offer both? I think it's a, if I have it right, it's a 1.8 and a two millimeter thick rotor in different cases. So kind of makes sense that the thicker rotor would, well, one, dissipate heat probably a little bit better. And then two, you just have more material there to conducted away from the braking area and then two i would imagine is a little bit more resistant to getting bent especially as you're getting up into bigger sizes and you like you talked about have a higher risk of bending and warping rotors and then trade-off being weight is that about right again or am i missing anything you, you pretty well got it there yeah thicker rotor you're going to be able to sink more heat in it it should be able to recover a little bit better when you're you let off the brakes there let things start to cool back down there it's going to handle that extremely well uh, the other thing that some people have commented about putting a thicker rotor, depending on your brake set, is it's going to adjust your bite point a little bit. You know, how far, far your pads have to throw before you're hitting a rotor there and you're, you know, starting to get that brake. So it's one of the, it can adjust your feel, but yeah, more than anything, it's there to make a, a thicker rotor so you can sink more heat in it. It's going to be more durable. And yeah, it is also nice from a, a handling standpoint that's just a little bit thicker, but it's also a little bit sturdier, you know, a little bit less likely to warp. You know, it's a solid piece of steel, so. On the bite point thing, I would imagine that that's maybe a little bit of a temporary thing when you kind of need new pads, because once the pads wear, you're just it's basically you're going to have the piston starting to compensate for pad wear just a little bit later with a thick rotor, I guess. But you're kind of going to need new pads to be feeling that for the most part. Does that seem fair? That's fair. It's one of those, it's a very minimal thing, but some people have commented on it, but it, a lot of that I think you can get out of just, you know, getting the right bleed process and everything down with your brakes and all your fine adjustments. So you should fairly well be able to accomplish the same effect. Well, continuing on the topic of rotor size, we talked about like reasons you might have for going bigger or smaller in general, but how would you encourage people to think about the relative rotor size that they're running between the front and the rear of their bike? You know, pretty common for people to run, a little bit bigger rotor in front, kind of just looking for more power out of the end where you theoretically can do more of your braking. But I could see an argument for running equal size rotors or maybe even a bigger one in back if you're just dragging your rear brake a bunch and needing the heat dissipation. So if you're talking to people and kind of making recommendations for them, how do you have them think about those trade-offs? 
it really is a complex subject. It, it really does come completely down to personal preference and personal feel there and how you're riding, how you're braking, what your goal is there. Cause you know, you see it, but like, like you mentioned, it is extremely common and this comes from a motorcycle thing as well to, to run a bigger rotor up front than you are in the rear. Cause theoretically that's where the majority of your braking is done. Um, a lot of people are running, uh, equal size front and rear, but even at the, the downhill world cup level, uh, Troy Brosnan here recently this year was running a bigger rotor on the back of his bike in the front, which is a hundred percent backwards to what the majority of people will tell you is right. But it's one of those, I know reading about it and listening to it, they did the data collection to figure out that, Hey, he mostly breaks the rear. So we're, we're going to be putting more heat into that rotor. So we should put a bigger rotor back there to, to handle the heat better, which is just pure logic and makes a ton of sense. Um, cause I mean, if you're going downhill, you, you never want to grab too much front brake. Cause if, if things go right and you do have the braking power, you're going to throw yourself over the front and we've all done that. And it's a great learning experience, but it's not fun. Um, but it, you know, generally if someone calls us up here at Calfer USA, we're, we're more than happy to jump on the phone. And generally how the conversation goes is, all right, so what are you currently running? What rotor size are you currently running on your bike? Do you feel like you have enough power there? If so, I probably wouldn't change anything. Do you want a bit more? Well, maybe try a bigger rotor on the front. Are you are you just going through pads on the back and everything? Well, maybe you want to upsize there. And it, it really comes down to just having a conversation and being able to, to guide people in the right direction 100% based off of how they're riding and what they're feeling. So in general, if if you don't feel like you have enough braking power, a, a great way to up that is you know the right set of pads or extremely simply put a bigger rotor on the front. If you hit the point where you touch your front brake and your, your front end's just washing out every time you, you hit the brakes there, maybe she could go down a size. Um, and the same thing goes for, you know, if you're a 120 pound cross country guy, you're not going to need, you know, 203 rotors anywhere, more than likely. Um, some of them ride extremely fast downhill, but I don't know any of them running that big of rotor on a cross country bike. A lot of those guys get along great with 160 rotors front and rear, and that's, that's all the more they need. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you've got a, you know, somebody that's, you know, 250 pounds on a heavy e-bike and they're, you know, riding downhill like an animal, some of them are, and, um, you know, that it makes sense to go a, a bigger rotor front and rear. And some of those guys are even matching a, a 223 rotor front and rear, assuming clearances and everything fit right. Um, just because they're, they're putting a ton of heats in, into their brakes. Sometimes they're dragging their brakes. So it makes sense for them to have a, a bigger rotor and they put that additional heat in wearing too yeah that makes a bunch of sense and i like the thought you kind of snuck in there about looking at relative pad wear and seeing if you're burning through rear brake pads way faster than your front say that's probably an indication that you're braking harder in the back and could stand to bump up there relative to the front or vice versa as, as the case may be so that seems like a a kind of nice way for people to look at it and think about it without having to for example you know invest in a real data collection system to check or anything it, that's a pretty good thought as a just simple, simple way to kind of compare what you're doing. And I like that. And it's, well, it's, it's kind of fun getting out there and testing different things out. And all right, do I put a bigger rotor on the rear, try that out for a bit and switch things up? I, I know there's some additional cost of having to do that, but if, if you've got the ability to try some different rotor sizes and just kind of get the different feel for it, it's, it's definitely worth, you know, testing out a bigger rotor and seeing if you can break that a little bit later and end up with a faster time overall. It's, it's, one of those areas that's pretty easy to experiment in early. On the subject of rotors, I don't doubt at all that the shape of the cutouts in a rotors matters, both from perspective of kind of 
trying to minimize noise and vibration and also how they perform at removing water and debris from the braking surface and so on. But how do you actually go about thinking about designing the shape of a rotor? And, you know, like you talked about with those special rotors for the Coleman's Hall team, you know, even if you have a very clearly outlined set of goals for a specific rotor, it just seems unintuitive to me to think, okay, well, if I want a rotor to do X, I should shape the holes like this. And how do you go about figuring those kind of things out? So thankfully I don't have to do any of the design and engineering because that's well outside my knowledge base. And, you know, quite frankly, not something I have a ton of interest in. I I love the the numbers and the sales and the business side of things. And I'm having a lot of fun with that. And, you know, since it's a family business and it has been for, you know, almost 70 years now or over 70 years now, it's, there's a lot of knowledge in the family there and just kind of a, a long history through a lot of motorcycle testing. I kind of taught them, depending on what you want to do, this is what you should design. Uh, we kind of, we're, we're very proud of the, the wave design that we have here. And that's both on the motorcycle side, as well as the bicycle side. All the bicycle rotors we sell are a wave rotor. And that's our patented, patented design. And what that wave does is it, it's constantly moving the rotor up and down just a little bit inside your caliper on that brake pad. So you're, it's getting an even wear on your brake pad but it's also not allowing heat to build up in any one spot on that brake pad at any one point. It's kind of allowing it to constantly cool there. So that's part of the design element there. Another thing that goes into that is we avoided, and I know this is exact opposite of the console rotors that you're gonna see out there, but our wave design rotors, it you won't see a circular hole in that brake track anywhere. And that's because a lot of times it's easy for heat to get trapped in that those little small circles there and not expel itself from the rotor. Same with any other foreign material there. If it's just going in a little circle, it's kind of makes itself happy and just sits in that spot on the rotor. So on our wave design there, it's got some some oblong holes that are, you know, nothing's perfectly round and that just allows air, any other foreign material as well to just escape and pretty much be ejected out of your caliper to, to keep everything running clean and, and cool air as well. That's really interesting. And to elaborate on the wave rotor concept you're talking about the outside profile of the rotor itself right so it's not a totally circular disc you've got kind of a the sort of top edge of the rotor if you like is moving up and down across the brake pad like you described in order to well like you said help cool and just remove debris water whatever it might be yeah so it is that the outside perimeter of the brake but it's also if you look just on the other side on the oh the inner portion of the brake track if you will it's also moving up and down in that pattern so your leading edge is always moving up and down in the in the in your caliper on your brake pad there but also the same with the interior cuts as well it's constantly moving up and down slightly just to you know keep a fresh leading edge keep your heat moving you know not not lock heat anywhere into the system there and is it sort of correct to think about it as all of those little edges, both on the wave profile and in the cutouts, are kind of acting as just little scrapers to kind of remove water or dirt or whatever might be getting thrown in there off of the rotor? And that's kind of why you, at least in part, why you don't see a totally solid braking surface, for example, on a bike rotor. Exactly, yeah. Sweet. Well, is there anything else about brake pads and rotor design that you think we haven't covered yet that we want to get out there? You know. More than anything, I think it's it's a conversation that's it's a lot of fun to have and get this out here. So thank you very much for the opportunity, of course. But it's it's fun to try to dispel some of the knowledge that's currently out there and um, about what the name of a brake pad means, whether it's organic or centered there. But 
also kind of some of the minutia that goes into it for sure. Um, more than anything, I think it's it's really beneficial for people to to try different rotor sizes and and change that up for for their riding style and what they're riding. And um, that can even go so far of so go so far as you know sometimes for you know the same downhill bike, same rider, different tracks, you might want a different brake setup just because of the demands of the course there. Um, so it's it's something that a lot of people don't think about, and there's not a, a lot of data acquisition about. There's getting to be more, which is extremely interesting. But I think it's something that's going to keep developing into the future here. And, you know, designs are going to change. Compounds are going to change over time. And you're going to end up with a great product at the end of the day. Right on. Well, I think this has been a super interesting and informative conversation for a lot of people. But to finally kind of wrap things up before I let you go here, name of the podcast is Bikes and Big Ideas, after all. Do you have a big idea to share with us? You know, <laughs> I, I go through ideas almost constantly and some of them stick around longer than others, some of them don't. You know, my first reaction is, you know, where where are bikes headed and, and what's that going to look at? But also the, the industry as a whole, you know, part of me wants to say, hey, we should have 32 inch wheels. We had 26, we had 29 and we went back, back to 29. Let, let's go up one more size and make a mullet out of that with a 29er. I think that could be interesting. Um, same thing with like everything's going wireless. You've got a wireless drivetrain wireless dropper post. Let's do wireless brakes next. I want to see how that works. I think there's some design challenges there. It could be interesting, but um, I think it's possible at the same time. And um, it's also interesting looking at e-bikes that are, you know, ABS is becoming a thing, whether good, bad, or otherwise, you know, we think of, you know, my ABS system is a little bit more, a little less brake because I, I just know how everything feels. But you know, if you've got rental bikes and a whole fleet of them from an insurance and liability standpoint, maybe it makes sense to have that ABS system. But on a, a broader concept of the industry, and I think there's some some interesting potential here. I'm not 100% sure what that is, but I'm really curious to see where the, the bicycle industry and the motorcycle industry are headed and how much those are going to converge over the next couple of years here. And the main reason I say that is yeah, Galfer is mostly known for their motorcycle background and it's getting better known for the bicycle side of things, but there's so many motorcycle brands that are offering an e-bike now, you know, Yamaha, KTM, Husqvarna, Ducati even has one, you know, they're all offering an e-bike. So they're coming into our industry, so to speak. Same thing with all your motorcycle dealerships and a lot of the dealers and distributors out there, are, you know, selling stuff for bicycles, how much that's going to take away from your local bike shop probably not much. Is it just more crossover? Um, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, is there going to be such thing as a bicycle, a bicycle shop anymore and a motorcycle shop, or is it all going to be one together there? I think that's something that it, I think we all need to keep an eye on, especially from the bicycle side and what bike shops are going to do as, you know, some of these powerhouses, so to speak, kind of, I don't want to say invade on our turf, but that's kind of what it, it's going to appear like to some. And um, I think that's kind of a, a big broader concept that's it's going to be really interesting to follow that is interesting and actually on the last week's episode episode 80 of bikes and big ideas i talked to chris porter and in part of that we got into it a little bit about some of the ways in which the bike and motorcycle industries operate differently from the angle that we're so used to bikes being these very modular things where you can swap out you know, your RockShox fork for a Fox or a Manitou or whatever, and all the drivetrains are coming from just a couple of different companies, and they're fairly modular and designed around these packages that 
you can interchange a lot more, even if in some cases the standards have gotten more complicated and more varied than some people might like. But it's still way more modular than motorcycles are. And so it's not like you're going around swapping forks off between different brands of motorcycles, for example. And so they're just operating in very different ways in that particular regard, at least. And yeah, sort of along the lines of your thought, it would be interesting if somehow there is a convergence and kind of how that ends up merging if if that does come to pass. Yeah, it's it's well, I definitely don't want the bicycle industry to be just like the motorcycle industry more than anything from the standpoint of, you know, bicycles are pretty simple. If when you're looking at brake rotors, we've got we've got center lock and we've got six bolt. We've got two ways to mount a rotor to your bike. That's pretty much it. Yeah, there's some some small brands doing some different things, but you don't really run across those. Whereas if you look at, you know, some of the major motorcycle manufacturers and on one model they'll have two different wheel options and they'll both take a different rotor with a different bolt pattern or a different diameter from one model to the next and you end up with tens of thousands of different rotors whereas you know for bicycles with all the sizes and different thicknesses and everything there you've got you know 20 it's a really small number which is really convenient and i don't want that to change no me neither it's nice having things the way we have it and pretty good way to be well Daryl, thanks. This has been super fun and I think super informative. Thanks for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Absolutely, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you are enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Daryl for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody.